Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hey everyone, welcome to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Captain Shanko. And I'm Psych88, and I don't want to be here. You were not excited about this one. We've, we've talked at length a little bit about this film in particular. And of course, we're talking about X-Men Apocalypse. The film that had Oscar Isaac pre-Moon Knight and had all the potential in the world and chose to do what it did. It's like choking in the, in the fourth quarter, right? Like, you had all of that goodwill from Days of Future Past, regardless of how well the adaptation from book to movie really was. It was a good movie, and it set up a lot of stuff. And boy, howdy, do you just faceplant. Yeah. I I don't have really appropriate words to describe just how awful this one was, but we're going to get through it. No, no, I have a word for it. I've used oh, it okay. I, I have used it for X3, The Last Stand, and also, I believe, for uh, Origins Wolverine. And the word is... Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get that on a mug. Just, like, <laughs> big, long... <laughs> it starts with an E. <laughs> In case anyone wants to, like, make a mock-up for us, it starts with an E. <laughs> the rest of it's just smashing the keyboard, but before we get into the ugh, we do need to issue a spoiler warning. So, Genesis. If you're looking for a spoiler-free zone, sorry, lovelies, you are in the wrong place. All right, thank you, Jen. All right. So, we are way back in the ancient times. Oh, 2020? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we're talking about 3600 BC, ancient Egypt. And they're leading this very old, gross man to a very old chamber, and also bringing a very bald and um, tunicked Oscar Isaac. 
I mean, we're already starting with the fan service, so, like... Yeah, but it wasn't good. He looked emaciated. <laughs> also, very bald, like, and definitely, like, recently shaved bald. Like, it, it didn't look good. Um, anyway, uh, gripes aside, they perform a ceremony to transfer Ensabanur into the younger body of Oscar Isaac <laughs> so that he can be immortal. Yes, because they... They show us that the Oscar Isaac body can heal. So apparently that's not a, that wasn't a power set that the apocalypse here or in Sabnur had yet. And so he transfers his consciousness over utilizing uh, celestial tech, which they totally do not do anything to tell you that it's celestial tech. It's just high tech magic. Lay on this table and we'll like wave a, a stick and, Boom, his brain is inside this guy now. And a lot of chanting. A lot of chanting. There's going to be more chanting. So he's got these four followers, and of course these are going to be our four horsemen of the apocalypse, are ambushed. And all of his followers are killed, and he is trapped under the rubble, but still very much alive. You're regretting that healing factor now, aren't you, my dude? Can we just talk about how much setup it takes to uh, take out a pyramid that way? Like, I I'm fairly certain the pyramids aren't all built with a uh, self-destruct in mind. Yet, these guys were able to just knock out a couple of large blocks, send them down some chutes, and take out all the supports of this giant freaking pyramid, and he's entombed alive. Like... It we're already at peak levels of sheer audacity or uh, incredulity. Like, come on, really? Yeah. Going on. So we jump up into the future to 1983, and we see a young Alex Summers and Scott going to Xavier's school for gifted children, and he's hoping that uh, Xavier and Hank can teach him to control the, you know, shooting lasers out of his eyes. Okay, so there is so much wrong with this first meeting with Scott Summers. I hate it. I hate all of it. So first, first, he's he's a picked on kid, which, fine. I, I think he was always kind of a, a nerd, and that's whatever. But it's 1983, so, like, naturally, he's a target. And then we just gloss over Alex Summers being the brother to Scott. He's just the brother. I, I We need to set up the timeline real quick for you. In 1962, Alex Summers was a teenager. 1983 should put him in his late 30s or even possibly early 40s. And yet he's got a high school aged brother. And then your guy, Marsden, did not, obviously come back because they recast him and made him younger and just kind of didn't mention it. No. And there is no amount of dad clothes that can make Lucas Till look like he was in his late 30s. And like we saw Marston at the end of the last movie. So if they're going to have him in this one, would you not think that they would try to bring him back? And I don't know if Marston just didn't want to come back or whatever, but... Could they have not gotten, like, a 30-something actor with dark hair who's gonna be wearing a visor, so who really cares what he looks like to come and play Scott Summers? Like, is that a thing that just couldn't happen? I, I, I guess they wanted that 
young because this is putting the you know the new first team of x-men together so we've got scott and and gene and they're all high school age which is what they would have been during the first comic that's what they were but we're really missing all of the other elements that made that comic book work mm-hmm. you've got hank already being a teacher-esque ghost kind of haunting around the the mansion pining away for the x-men days or whatever um and okay his first initial meeting with gene gray is an absolute train wreck of characterization her first words to him are watch where you're going he is bandaged around his eyes and is obviously being led around by his brother I I guess they were trying to go for, you know, a enemy to lover kind of situation, but holy god, can you not paint a woman to be a complete and utter terrible person? Insensitive. Yes, highly insensitive. Like could not care about anything ever. And normally I love Sophie Turner in the stuff that she's in, but she is wooden throughout this entire movie i get nothing there are no peaks there are no valleys her facial range goes from barely registered rbf to more registered rbf i i don't know if that just that group of actors did not want to come back and that's why they had to go this direction but it was such a hard shift to port that i it threw me it was horrendously distracting for me at least because I was used to the old cast. And I'm not saying that there was no need, because again, you know, Marsden probably just did not want to come back. It's one thing to do a 30-second cameo and another thing entirely to film a whole movie, but why? It was a choice. It was a choice and not a good one. Um, but I digress. And Sabanur is awakened by his worshippers and meets a young orphan named Aurora Monroe. Yeah, we are going to know her as Storm later on, and he learns all about where the world is at, and he believes that they've lost their way. So he's gonna rebuild the world from the ashes of the current one, and he enhances her powers, and then she becomes a follower. That kind of harkens to like some of Storm's early stuff, like she was a pickpocket in Cairo that was established as her in her origins. Uh, she worked for a evil telepath by the name of the Shadow King. So her working for Apocalypse here at this time is kind of a stand-in. So, okay, we we do this, but I don't know. There's just something. There's something about, there's one thing about a young kid who is just trying to survive in Cairo and gets, uh, I'm not going to say taken in, but uh, used by another being and this quasi mentorship that she's going to have with apocalypse here and oh meanwhile we're all worshiping mystique as a mutant hero talk about a freaking 180 on that and what is she up to they certainly are skipping over a lot and they're just like here we got to get all of our horsemen together uh, because it, it needs to happen and of course they've only got three of them so far so who else do we have to recruit but 
one of our favorite, somewhat morally gray guys who could sway wildly between hero and bad guy, but who, you know, left off with more or less positive things, I suppose. We left Eric at the peak of Magnetoism, basically. He is the face of... He's the face of mutant terrorism, but he's the face of the Brotherhood. He's the face of mutants are no longer going to stand around and get killed or have laws enacted against them or anything. So we have him at the height. And what's he doing instead? He's living in freaking communist Poland under an assumed name and trying to be normal. Like, talk about some character regression. Yeah, I, I want to know what happened in, like, the not- huge time gap between these two films where Gene and Scott magically become teenagers again and Eric's starting a family in the forest because that worked for him before. Like, I, why can't Eric just have a family? All right, guys, a lot of this could be solved if you just stop killing his family because he gets found out in what... I can only describe as the biggest piece of BS movie comeuppance I have ever seen in my life because he saves a man's life by not allowing something gigantic and metal to fall on him and crush him to death. And how do his lovely co-workers repay him? By showing up to his house with bows and arrows. We have no metal on us. Are you Magneto? I'm like, come on, come on. So Eric has this daughter. Her name is Nina. And... He has talked to her a little bit about his, not his necessarily his time in Auschwitz, but that his family was taken from him when he was a child. and But no one's going to take him away from her. And then we get the mirror of, of his first initial power usage at Auschwitz here, where Nina, who has had an affinity for animals... She initializes her power for the first time of communicating with animals. And in a forest, you have birds of all kinds. And she sicks them on this militia. And, okay, so the earthquake that happened, that was one of the biggest bull things ever. Because if an earthquake from Cairo, which is where this originated, could be felt that strongly in Poland, there would be a lot of devastation between... Cairo and Poland, just saying. Anyway. Yeah, this movie had a lot of glaring issues. And the guy holding that bow and arrow, I, that shot looked absolutely worthless. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? So the, the, the thing about filming on a movie set, and <laughs> as among my laundry list of useless information in this brain, right? I watched a video a long time ago about archery and film. And what was described is, for filming safety reasons, prop bows and arrows cannot be over, like, 15 pounds of power. Most of them are PVC painted to look like wood or metal or whatever it's made out of. And very, very infrequently are they using an actual compound bow unless there are some very stringent and strict safety, you know, safety measures in place. Sure. Yeah. When I saw this bow fire, it looked very much like a slack line on a piece of PVC, and that arrow looked like garbage because it was basically a skewer. But it did its job, and it, it uh, stopped the birds. <laughs> <laughs> yep, 
Yeah, uh, in a rare instance of on-screen child death, they kill Nina, and the arrow somehow has enough power to go through Nina and into the wife, killing both of them instantly. This arrow doesn't look like it has enough power to go through a sheet of paper, much less two people, but whatever. Eric is distraught, and he has a little bit of metal on him, and he uses it to just quickly end this malicious life. They're all like, oh my god, what have we just done? And now we're all dead. Whoops. Okay. Yeah, and then our good our good buddy in Summonor steps in, and after Eric has, in devastating fashion, lost his entire family, and then murdered a whole bunch of people, where does he take our mentally unstable friend Magneto, but to Auschwitz, the birthing ground of all of his trauma? <laughs> Talk about a, a significant rewrite to history. Yeah, Apocalypse has him dig deep within himself and find his real power, which is just more rage and pain and all that. But he uses his magnetic powers to stunning CGI levels and level Auschwitz. There are certain things that if you want to keep keep it the way certain things play out, you can't go annihilating certain large landmarks like that that has an effect that can't be seen or or really felt until later mm -hmm. but now eh, we'll just we'll blow it up it's fine no and i i i disagree like i don't i don't like how they handled that either because several years ago i got to i got to go to germany and one of our excursions on the trip was to visit dachau which is another concentration camp and places like that, while horrible, and while horrible things happened there, they stand as monuments to why we can't go back to that. And it reminds people the significance of the events that took place there. And to just say, you know what, we're just going to level it, is horrendously disrespectful to the things that happened there and the people that lost their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm, obviously they didn't go and actually level the real Auschwitz, but to show it... Even as a complete mock-up, CGI, whatever, and annihilating it is is a significant disservice and quite disrespectful to all of those who went through Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. But hey, this movie's disrespecting everything, so I believe we've got more BS to discuss. Yeah, so somehow, and Salvador remotely accesses Cerebro and uses it to... You know, he forces Xavier to make uh, all of the global superpowers, like all the big countries that have nuclear weapons, yeah, to uh, launch them into space so that nobody can can stop him. Because you know that's yeah, um, that's that's how he chose to handle that situation. Well, and then they storm the castle and and just outright kidnap Xavier. Yeah, one yeah, one of Apocalypse's abilities is a like large scale large scale teleportation similar to Blink's ability. He creates a bubble of basically space time, moves them through it to wherever he wants to go. And so him and the four horsemen pop into the bottom of Xavier's mansion, yoink Charles, and leave. And Havoc wrecks some havoc. I could not roll my eyes harder when Xavier said it to him 
maybe five minutes beforehand in the movie. I was just like, no, no. You know, and I want to know, if they're going to kidnap Xavier anyway, what, what was the point of remotely having him make everyone launch their nukes into space? Like, that just seems like they wasted some steps. Couldn't they have just done it in one, one go? I believe Insomniar didn't know about Charles until Charles contacted Magneto mm. to try to get him to turn turn back from being a bad guy again. Mm-hmm. And then... In that initial meeting, Insomniac figures out just how powerful Charles is, and then, alright, I'm going to use you to do all this, because Apocalypse has a bunch of powers. One of them is amplification, and that's how he was able to do that. But once he knew about what Charles could do, that's when he was like, oh, I need that guy. I don't have that power set, so we need his physical body. We're going to body snatch him. Yeah, so we then go into uh, one of those sequences that you talked about where you remember how I was so jazzed about the time in a bottle sequence from Days of Future Past? Yeah, because it was good. Yeah, they did it again here, and this one was okay. It was a little ridiculous, like, obviously, but... Yeah, because he's out running an explosion. They rehashed the same thing, and it it was great the first time, and... I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen the, like, Lilo and Stitch TV show. Uh, yeah, I did. There was, there was an experiment that could duplicate items, but the item that he would duplicate was only half as good as the thing that it was made from. And that's what happens with the Quicksilver time-in-a-bottle sequences moving forward. So this one was okay, and then the ones after it, we'll talk about. <laughs> yeah. So he's he's throwing students out windows and hanging up blankets and just saving everyone from the mansion because, uh, fun story, it's blowing up. Yeah. Havoc tries to use his powers to shoot the group of them before they can leave. They teleport out. And his beam goes right through this reactor core thing that Hank had just downstairs as part of his warplane engine and whoop boom Mm -hmm. i can't express my um, my disappointment enough about how we were setting all this up with the x-men of okay we we have the warplane it needs a little bit of work there's you know probably all the suits and all that stuff and like it's it's the mansion and we're just gonna blow it up again like come on for funsies come on the paint hasn't even dried yet. Yeah. So, uh, and and in perfect fashion, Maximov managed to not get everybody. Because he missed one. Alex. Somehow, he didn't get to him fast enough. I don't even know how. First off, the amount of just precognition that Quicksilver would have needed to have to know the mansion was exploding when he did to, to do all that was absurd he wasn't there he was outside but whatever yeah and it's it it wasn't even like the time in a bottle sequence where he the elevator doors popped up and mans was on the elevator he saw all the people shooting at them and you know experienced it he was there yeah in all honesty it felt like just a real cheap way to write alex out because we really didn't want to have to have the discussion of the quasi 30 40 year old havoc with the teenage cyclops so he needed to die and that's what he did yeah 
And who, of course, shows back up in the plot to capture Hank, Raven, Peter, and Moira, but William Stryker. And carts him off for interrogation. Your feelings. Uh, Your feelings. Yeah, because we go back to Alkali Lake, too. And I was just like, why are we here? I will give the movie credit, or at least their marketing department. I didn't know about this when I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, our newbie X-Men managed to escape. They weren't there at the mansion. They were out for a mall day with Jubilee. But Jubilee gets knocked out with the rest of the students. And Kurt, Jean, and Scott are the only ones left standing. They hitch a ride on the helicopter by Jean's use of telepathy to make them disappear. Anyway, we go to Alkali Lake. That should sound familiar to... Those of you on the podcast or anyone who's a fan of the X-Men movies. Yeah, because we've been here before. A couple of times! There's somebody here. But, you know, why is he there? Because supposedly Mystique was Stryker, and, you know, you would assume that she would not support the idea of putting him into mutant experimentation. Right? But apparently that wasn't Mystique. Or, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows why this is happening? I don't even think they knew it was happening. To be fair. That's fair. That's fair. But we get the reveal. And I gotta I gotta share this story. So my wife has joined me to, to watch the movie and they the characters are talking about there's an animal in this big metal cage. Gene's like, no, it's no he's not an animal. And we we do the lifting of the big heavy things and out like, he starts stepping out, and before he starts stepping out, my wife says, I really hope, for your sake, that is Sabretooth. And I, I looked at her and I said, I don't have that much luck. I know who that is. And there is, basically, Hugh Jackman. Metal claws, completely feral Wolverine, in all his glory. And I, my heart just sank. Because I figured, out of all the things that this movie had going for it, we at least weren't going to cover Wolverine. And I was wrong. You can't get everything you hope for, psych. And it's <laughs> it's just a shame. But Jean ends up partially restoring his memory, because that's something. She, I mean, she has the capability, but... Uh, yeah. Not necessarily I mean, the she control. She looks so happy to do it, too. Yeah, and like, isn't she seeing the messed up stuff he went through? You would think... Yeah. Anyway, uh, and Sabanur tells Eric to reach down into the earth and feel the metal, the magnetic field, and by doing so, starts just wreaking worldwide destruction across, you know, everything. I, I mean, the whole world is covered in metal at this point. So, you know, things are coming down. And during... All of this craziness, uh, and Sabanur then is working on transferring his consciousness into Charles's body, because, like you said, he wants those shiny, shiny psychic powers, because he doesn't have that. He's like a kid in a toy store, pointing at everything that he doesn't have and screaming. Yup. And uh, we gotta throw in the uh, completely necessary, at this point, uh, CGI destruction of a major city, and millions dead and all that like the stakes were too big and for the x-men to make it out like like they do as as a superhero team 
they are millions behind at this point. In Cairo's freaking wasteland with a giant pyramid in the middle of it. There is no undoing that. No, this this is a tr- this is a tragedy. This is a like a global extinction. Yeah, uh, I mean, shifting in the magnetic uh, field of like the Earth's magnetic field is a potential mass extinction event. And on top of that, you've got a major city just being completely annihilated. Mm-hmm. I I also I want to know the I guess the the reasoning behind the power scaling of the horsemen because I love Psylocke and I like Angel too, but Magneto and Storm are worlds more powerful than they are. And and why would they get the nod to be the horsemen is my question because I would feel like he would want that kind of unhinged and crazy power. And of course he gave them the enhancements, but I mean you're gonna enhance wings and and Psylocke's ability and and I mean there's only so much you can do with it and it kinda shows because we just see Magneto destroying the whole planet and storm causing, you know storms. <laughs> but but what but what are the other two doing? Um Angel's dying. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Uh, this is such a waste of both Angel and Archangel. Like they brought him back as this '80s punk rock kid, right? Heavy metal, uh, heavy denim jacket, weird mohawk thing, mullet, whatever, caged fighter background. His wings have um, these talons, kind of at like I guess at the bend of where the the wing is. Like I'm not exactly certain. What I mean, it's completely different than the angel that we know. This guy is more of a, more like a bird of prey than, or, or like a half bird, half human than he is an angel. And then uh, his transformation scene, I'm not even going to talk about. But yes, he's dying because we need to, he's already wasted, so we might as well waste him fully. Yeah, because what does what do X Men films love doing more than anything? Wasting characters that had so so much potential. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, at some point, Eric and Aurora decide that uh, they don't really like what's happening and turn on Ensabinor. And with the help of your favorite guy Cyclops, they keep him occupied physically while Charles uses his telepathy. To fight him in the astral. And he loses badly. He he opens with, you're in my house line, right? And you're like, all right, finally, someone's going to stand up and, and Xavier's going to show how strong he is as a, as a telepath. And then he gets his butt kicked up and down the astral plane version of his own mansion. It's sad. It's pathetic. And he's reaching out to Jean Grey to be like, unleash your power. And I'm just like, please make this movie stop. And she does. And she incinerates Insabinor to end the conflict so, so quickly. Yeah, she goes all Phoenix on him, which, whatever. And yeah, she dusts him. She dusts him before Phoenix was dusting in... Well, in the last stand. Anyway, so uh, Charles and Mora decide to rekindle their little thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. We picked her up somewhere along the way, guys. Uh, It really doesn't matter. She didn't do anything to the plot. She was there. She got the participation award. 
she does less in this movie than she did in First Class. Because at least in that one, she's the reason Charles gets shot in the back. She just stands there for the entire third act of the movie with a very worried look on her face. Like, oh no, what are we all going to do now? And it's like, I don't know, lady. How about you shoot somebody? I don't know, lady. The director forgot to give you lines. <laughs> too. Eric and Jean reconstruct the school. And Eric decides not to stay. Peter also makes a choice. Not to tell Magneto, like, hey, I know you lost your family, but not all of it. Just doesn't, just doesn't say anything. It's like, you, you don't, you maybe don't want to reach out to your poor dad, who's like, kind of been through some stuff. At the same time, I can understand. Like, if my dad was a mass murdering uh, mutant terrorist, I might want to keep that on the DL. Yeah. Just thinking out loud. Finally, we come to my favorite part of the movie. The end. The end. And I will say this. we Oh, we finally got some, like, actual color in the freaking costumes, which I did like. I, I did like the final costumes for the X-Men here. Like, you got Nightcrawler rocking that black and red with some uh, white trim. You've got Storm with the black and gold trim. And you've got Scott with the blue and the, the yellow Y bandolier thing. Like, I was really cool. And a silver visor, like, all of it. It was it was really nice to see. Yeah, because we got the black and yellow, like, leather-clad suits from first class. But then after that, we kind of transitioned away. And now we've got these really colorful, almost comic-esque suits. And I think it was... Fan service. And I have to wonder if they did it because they knew that people were going to be upset with them about the rest of the movie. (laughs) Uh, No, they had high hopes for this movie. They had really, really high hopes for this one. This one one went through screening? I don't know. And and everything. Yeah, we have complaints and we voiced those complaints very, very thoroughly because the glaring issues. But I am glad they gave you suits that you like because we've had some bad ones. Yeah, we've had, we've had, like, lackluster costumes, we've had uninspired costumes, we've had, I guess you guys just went to a thrift store and just made it all work costumes. So it's to, for, for an X-Men movie to finally give us really good comic-inspired costumes was actually a nice treat. It's just a shame it takes the entire two hours for that to happen in the last five seconds. Yeah, they couldn't have given us the suits before the big fight. Yeah. Yeah. Because everyone's just in these, like, military garb freaking flight suits that they pulled from Alkali Lake. Anyway, post credit scene, let's wrap this. Yeah, so some, of course, black suits visit the Weapon X facility, and they recover an x-ray and a blood sample that's simply marked weapon x and this is all on behalf of the essex corporation roll credits uh yeah one of those one of those darker corners we we are also frequently talking about yeah this one was a um this one according to some critics this movie was a franchise killer or at least it should have been a franchise killer it wasn't because there's actually worse after this but there's not worse for us after now 
how about we hit to the, the mid-break, and we'll talk about some better stuff in that. Absolutely. I'm down. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Welcome to the mid-break. We'd like to thank everyone who has stuck with us this far. And if you're a part of the Patreon, a big thank you for that. You too can join in on the fun by joining up via the link in the episode description. We've got several tiers. A few of them get you on the show at the end of the month. We would really like to have a couple of patrons to have a nice chat with. If only just so that we can talk with other fans and about how disappointing some of these things are. Or how awesome some of these things are. Or whatever. Just something. We're, we're dying to interact with some more people. It's always a really good time when we're able to have some organic conversations. Because you and I spend a lot of time talking to each other. And I think a lot of our talking points get discussed and and we don't have a lot of outside inspiration and there are questions that some of you guys might think of to ask that completely go over mine and Sykes heads. Um, so definitely think about joining our Patreon, but if you can't support us financially, you can always drop us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. Any five-star reviews will get read out in this portion of the show. We had one from Teacup, the co-host of the Dragon Age Lorecast, Assassin's Creed Lorecast, and the Inheritance Page-by-Page Page podcast, as well as Holocron Histories, which he does with Ben of Temeria. Uh, so he left us a five-star review, and it says, Making me rethink my allegiance. Five stars. I have always been a DC over Marvel type of person. This podcast, however, brings the MCU into a higher place in my fandom. Hearing the passion and love that Syke and Shanko bring to this podcast makes me want to dive deeper into Marvel and learn more about the universe. Great work, both of you. Thank you, Teacup. That's really the kind words from you, and, and I, I love hearing it, especially because I have immense respect for the work that he does. Yeah. Uh, I mean, come on, you're co-host of four other podcasts. That's That's a lot. And they are doing phenomenally well. And so, yeah, dude, thank you so much. And if you just want to chat with us directly, you can always hit us up on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, or the Robots Radio Discord, where we have a channel specifically for this show. A link for the Discord will also be in the show description. Speaking of other shows on Robots Radio Network, I believe you got the fight space, yes? Yes, I do. The fight space has been on a short hiatus because I have been in the middle of a move. My life is crazy right now, but I'm happy to be talking to you and getting back to the show, and I'll be back on the fight space here shortly. It's a mixed martial arts, or just martial arts in general, podcast. I do that show currently solo, and I talk about the culture and the world of mixed martial arts and the community at large. I tell the stories, I interview a lot of fighters, coaches, and uh, even other podcast hosts, which has been really interesting. So if you're interested in the martial arts community or anything involving combat sports, definitely check out the Fight Space. And psych! You've got other stuff going on on robots as well. 
You can find me on the Mass Effect Blue Shift podcast. It's a tabletop RPG podcast that uses the Fate system. We are Citadel security agents solving crimes on the Citadel, and I play dashing human agent Jack Parizo. Episodes drop monthly on the first Friday of the month, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, The newest one has actually just dropped. It's a really great combat episode, so if you haven't had an opportunity to check us out, I recommend hitting that part up. And that is it for the mid-break. So let's go talk about what few characters I have to introduce. Okay, so I only have three, and I'm kind of glad I only had three, because I could mainly (laughs) spend my time uh, discussing how much I didn't care for this movie. But we're going to go through these guys somewhat quickly here. So up first is making a final, finally a proper introduction, is Jubilation Lee, a.k.a. Jubilee, introduced in the Uncanny X-Men number 244 in May 1989, created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. She has firework powers. She wears the yellow raincoat with the pink sunglasses. I mean, her look in the movie, dead on. You couldn't miss her at all. She gets the whole two scenes, gets knocked out, and stays out of the movie for the rest of it, which was a real shame. She missed being a part of the main cast by that much. She got to work on her chin. (laughs) Or something. So, in the comics, she quickly became a fan favorite due to her exposures on the main team, uh, also being written in as Logan's sidekick for much of the early 90s, and, of course, the 90s cartoon. Like, everyone knows her, I feel like, from that, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she became very iconic because she was a really big part of that show. Well, and she she was the young audience hook. She, like... She was she was the young kid on the group, and so she was the audience's character to attach to the X-Men. So yeah, that's and that's what they used her for for basically everything in the comics and, and whatnot, but it really took off with the cartoon. Mm-hmm. Um, she was one of the many mutants who got depowered with the other 90% after M-Day. She spent 2011 through 2019 as a vampire. She got cured of that eventually, obviously. She became single mom of adopted son Shogo, and she is currently repowered and with the rest of the mutant kind on Krakoa. So she's done a lot of growing up, and that's really good. Uh, she's not the same kid. Uh, she's got a little bit of a power upgrade as well. It's not just fireworks. It's a little bit more like uh, plasma ball explosions almost. But yeah, she's a fun character, and you know, if the movies had gotten anything else right after this, she'd be in a really good position, I'd say. She was mishandled as a character. She can be added to that list of characters that got shafted. I mean, this whole movie is a list of characters who got shafted. That's fair. (laughs) You know what? That's fair. I'm not going to take that away from you. Speaking of shafted characters, we have Elizabeth Betsy Braddock, a.k.a. Psylocke. She's introduced as Betsy Braddock in Captain Britain, number eight, in December 1976 by Chris Claremont and Herb Trimp, brought on to the X-Men during the New Mutants Annual Number 2 in 1986, where she took the codename Psylocke. At that time, she was a blonde white woman and sister to Captain Britain, and her power set was mainly just telepathy. Yeah, she even did a stint as Captain Britain. 
Indeed, she did. She did a little bit of a stint as Captain Britain before her brother took it back. Now we enter the problematic part of her, of most of her character, unfortunately. Enter Kowan. Introduced in X-Men number 17 in February 1993. She was created to fix a very racist problem, I would say. Though there is actually no uh, real evidence of it. Like, for her inception. Back in 1989, someone decided to create a timeline where Braddock was captured by the hand, brainwashed with ninja training, including utilizing her telepathy as a psi knife, and altered her appearance to be Eastern Asian. Which nobody fixed. So Fabian Nicisa, who you would probably know most for his work on Deadpool, he created Kawan and... He also really messed up the continuity by not reading the, the the issues where that happened. He just completely made up new stuff. So, yeah, it, it becomes a whole mess. But beyond the continuity rewrites, the Kawan appears in Braddock's original body. And everyone finds out that back when Braddock was captured by the Hand, they actually swapped bodies instead of them just altering Braddock's body. And before anyone could undo this, Kawan was killed in Braddock's body, trapping Braddock in the Asian one, which would remain that way until 2019. Yikes. Yeah. This finally does get resolved at the end of the Hunt for Wolverine series, where both women got resurrected and put in their correct bodies. Braddock in her white blonde body has gone on to become the new Captain Britain again, with her brother stepping down to become uh, Captain Avalon, while Kwan has taken the Psyluck moniker and operates on various X teams. Shenko, I would really like your thoughts on Yellowface here. Yeah, so with situations like this, it, it seemed like there was almost. No reason. I guess maybe just to sell the idea of her getting the ninja training, they decided to make her appear more Eastern Asian. And that is a massive problem because it's kind of, it falls almost into the white savior complex, except for the fact that they just made her Asian. And it is a giant 360 for the character because she is historically a blonde bombshell. Like, that is her her deal. Like, when she debuted in the comics, she was very blonde, very, you know, I mean, she's English. She's British, you know? <laughs> like, her brother, her brother is Captain Britain. He runs around in the Union Jack spandex suit. It's, it's like Captain America, but give it the tea that we threw in the harbor. Instead of superhero steroids, they inject him with tea. <laughs> just just kidding i know he got the amulet of right and not the sword of might he had to choose and then he became captain britain and whatever whatever and then eventually betsy becomes captain britain but i think i think changing a character to suit an asian stereotype is hurtful to the community that you're trying to represent and like the whole ninja thing is is it's a little bit it's a little bit racist because if you look at history ninjas didn't exist. They're fully a media creation, and then it became popularized in American media, and then the myth persisted. So I mean, I mean, there's I, I can I could do a whole episode on the fight space about ninjutsu, 
and and the whole phenomenon that created. So it's a problem. I don't like it. I'm glad that eventually this got retconned and they're both back in their own bodies and I I like where they went with it because I think that's the natural progression for Betsy to be Captain Britain because I do like her in that in that um I guess in that mantle and uh Psylocke can go on being herself as a as an Asian lady and we need more positive representation for that community because like thus far what do we got um the mandarin oh yeah do you want to know what her code name was when they initially brainwashed her i don't think i do but it hit me with it lady mandarin i quit (laughs) i quit i I don't like this anymore i'm sorry Uh, (laughs) like yeah i i 100 agree with just about everything like and unfortunately like that's just it's a showing of the times. It was the late 80s. So Asian culture was still all the thing. I believe they made her look like that so that she could fit in. I believe they were trying to get her to like infiltrate Hong Kong or something. And so blonde woman stands out. Another Asian chick? No, doesn't stand out. And then can we talk about the costume? Because she is like has been one of the most overly sexualized X-Men characters of all time. Oh yeah, for sure. Like the it's it is a it's a bathing suit. She's wearing a she's wearing a bathing suit into battle. I mean like I can even get behind the like full spandex suits because at least maybe it has some like flame flame resistance or something like in the skin type fabric and you know the boots always have to be go-go boots or heels which like Obviously, men design those characters because not a single one of them has ever tried to run in high heels for any length of time. Run around in high heels and boots that go up to your mid thigh. Like, no, none of that makes any sense. Those women aren't sexy. They don't smell good. They're sweating to death and in immense amounts of pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I say, you know, I put her on the list of most overly sexualized X-Men characters. I mean, she's right up there with Emma Frost, Mm -hmm. who I think is, I think, the queen of overly sexualized characters. But, I mean, that's like her whole, that was written in as her appeal is this, as this femme fatale, rich femme fatale, I should say. Whereas Psylocke is written as the just cut your throat femme fatale. Mm, but still weirdly sexualized. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, I, and I think it has a lot to do with her being portrayed as an Asian woman, unfortunately. Yeah, some of that Asian fetishism going in there. Yeah, we call it yellow fever in the Asian dating community. Oh. Yeah. Which I could, I could do a whole, I could, I, listen, I could do a whole subcommittee on that, and maybe, maybe I'd have to call Genesis, and we can, we can hash it out on that topic at, at a separate time, but it's, ultimately, it's problematic. I don't like to see it. I really wish that they would fix it. Marvel, please, if you're listening, um, cast me as Psylocke, and give me pants. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not 100% certain of if Olivia Munn has any any interest whatsoever in coming back to this role she's one of the only she's one of the few characters to survive the end and she runs off and we never see her again and i will give them at least this much credit the costume they went with in the movie is at least accurate to all the highly sexualized uh costumes of psylocke it just also felt it 
felt gratuitous almost. Yeah. 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 Woof. Right. And now I get to talk about Insabanur. Oh boy. Alright. Um right. Insabanur, aka Apocalypse. He was introduced with a cameo appearance in X Factor number five, that's June nineteen eighty six, and a full appearance in number six in July by Louise Simonson and Jackson Gweiss. Apocalypse is I have no real way to put this other than a god among men and mutants. He has extreme regenerative capabilities, immortality, which is separate from those regenerative capabilities, technopathy, metamorphic capabilities, and he's aided by celestial tech, plus a genius-level intellect, and thousands years of battles. So how does he lose to the X-Men? And it's typically through betrayal from his underlings. Uh, he's got one named Ozymandias. He's a constant schemer. He also typically teams up with Mr. Sinister, who also likes to betray uh, Apocalypse when given half a chance. Apocalypse has created several iterations of the Horsemen, with Angel, Caliban, Wolverine, and Gambit all having served as his Horsemen of Death at one point or another. Angel being the most famous of that set because he goes on to become Archangel. And I ha now I'm going to talk about his transformation scene in the movie. That was so poorly done, I had no idea what was going on. It was so badly shot, I couldn't tell you what was happening for like two freaking minutes. Until he finally like stood, until they had him in different lighting. He's just, I don't know, it was one of the worst things I had seen for a comic book transformation scene. And I hated, I hated every second of it. Yeah. This movie made a whole lot of questionable filming decisions and a whole lot of questionable scripting decisions and casting decisions and just anything that required thought, really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and poor, poor Oscar Isaacs. Like, he's like, I'm really glad that he gets his redemption arc when he comes back for uh, for Moon Knight, and I'm excited to talk about that show when we get to that point, because they painted him blue, and they put him in that suit, and he looked uncomfortable like you said earlier, and he was uncomfortable, and he is not returning to that role, ever. No, no. Uh, so, part of... Part of the suit was a huge cooling unit that was, like, built into the thing to keep him from overheating and dying in it. And then between takes, he would they would just shuttle him off to a tent where he was just sequestered until the next take so that he could keep cool. It was, it was an awful experience for him. He got zero, like, collaborative time with his fellow actors. Like, that time between takes, that's when you were making connections that's when you're talking to people you know that's and that's your time to get to know your cast your fellow castmates and he got none of that mm -hmm. and on top of it he had a terrible makeup thing to go with and you can tell they significantly cut down on uh mystique's time in blue she spends most of it as as jennifer lawrence mm -hmm. yeah and like you like to go back to the to the makeup portion he looked cakey and i mean i've done enough theater makeup to know that you do have to cake it on for the stage but this ain't the stage 
No, camera sees everything, and you're right. I don't know if they're trying to, like, age him up a little bit to, like, show that the wear and tear of being Apocalypse was burning out this body, and so he that's why he was constantly needing to change out bodies. Because he shouldn't have needed to switch bodies so soon after getting the Oscar Isaac body. Like, beginning of the movie, he swaps bodies, and then he gets entombed alive. And that's where he remains. Mm-hmm. And then he comes, you know, he comes back, he... He's relatively the same. Nothing's really changed for him, except a couple thousand years. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, ch- choices were made. Choices were made. And I feel like some of this chaos comes from where we get all of this stuff from. And that would be the X-Factor series overall. Because we want to talk about the comic book that kind of inspired all of this. Just creating X-Factor was... A, a monumental task because at the time only four of the five members were alive and two of them were on another team one of them had retired so they had they had no one <laughs> yeah so here's what they did at the time beast and iceman were on the defenders and while well, sales were doing not very well for the defenders so they killed off most of the team and that freed up beast and iceman angel was just like hanging around being a billionaire so they just grabbed him scott was with his wife madeline and infant son nathan in alaska having retired from the superhero life and what do they do they bring back gene gray this is where the whole convoluted series of events surrounding the resurrection of gene gray comes from in the original time before this series existed Jean Grey became the Phoenix over Jamaica Bay and then died during the Dark Phoenix saga. This retcons it to that when Jean Grey went into the water, the Phoenix Force cloned her, became the clone, cocooned the original at the bottom of the bay, and then lived out Jean Grey's life. And that was why it went crazy, because it couldn't handle being mortal, and then it died. So it wasn't even the real Jean Grey who did all of that stuff. That was just the Phoenix Force pretending to be a person. The real one comes back and joins up with X-Factor. And because Jean Grey is alive, Scott is met with the decision to leave the wife and family he's got, which his wife looked remarkably a lot like Jean Grey. He doesn't have a type. Because he doesn't have a type. Well, also, Madeline Pryor was a clone of Jean Grey made by... uh. Mr. Sinister, for the sole purpose of them procreating so that he could get a mix of their genetics and use that to further Apocalypse's goals. Yeah. Ew. I know. I don't like it. (laughs) So maybe it's fitting that this movie was so damaging to the franchise because I kind of blame X-Factor for a whole lot of what is wrong with the X-Men timeline and franchise overall. If that series didn't exist we'd be looking at a completely different X-Men lineup, I would say. But they broke so many rules that Marvel has just continued to do. Because Jean Grey dies at the end of the new X-Men team, only they bring her back again with the whole cocooning. It's it's just this repeat cycle. We're just going to continue to do what had been done. And that's boring. That's It's annoying. That you guys just you just rehash the same stuff over and over and over. Are you telling me that Jean Grey is a love bug because 
she cocoons herself and then comes back every year different and we're, we don't want to see it anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's probably more like the Phoenix Force because that's what who keeps doing it to Jean Grey. They just keeps cocooning off parts of Jean to like make sure that there's always a host for it. I don't know. Listen, at least if I hit at least if I hit the Phoenix Force with my car, it just obliterates the car. It doesn't just like wreck my paint and have to be scraped off with a chisel. <laughs> yeah, but on that note, yeah, that that was X Men Apocalypse, and we certainly had some feelings about it. All of them, most of yeah. them, not not so great. Except we we did like the the more comic accurate suits, and um, yeah, I suppose. This movie put Oscar Isaac on Marvel's radar, maybe, because they said, hey, you remember that guy that they made super uncomfortable and painted blue? How about we give him a way more comfortable suit and paint him white instead? You know that guy that we made to look like Ivan Ooze? Yeah, let's get him and put him in white instead. And for those of you who get that reference, thank you so much. Shenko doesn't get it, and she makes me feel old. So feel old with me. Listen, the new merch is just going to say Shenko makes Psych feel old. <laughs> okay, boomer. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. That them's fighting words. You can like <laughs> review Dark Phoenix all by yourself because I really don't want to go through that. No. Um we're going to an even darker corner very soon. Uh, help. So on that note, thank you everyone. Have a great night. We will catch you next week. <laughs> night everyone. As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credit section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. In Seven Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration, Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us, Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork, Pipe Men, a veteran and friend for the outstanding music, our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this, and you, our fans, without whom this would be a vanity project. Let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And, to quote Stan the Man, enough said. When a wasteland detective and a vault girl cross paths, no criminal is safe. You're both under arrest. Don't move a muscle if you know what's good for you. Based in Bethesda's Fallout series, follow Walter and Bunny as they traverse the Texas Commonwealth and New Vegas, busting big crime rings. We'll need all we can to expand into Vegas territory. And surviving anything the wasteland can throw at them. It's him! It's the Mothman! Featuring a series of nail-biting narratives and guest stars from across the Fallout community. It's anybody's guess what thrilling case is up next. War never changes, does it, Bunny? 
No, it certainly does not. True Vault Escapades, a Fallout audio drama. Available anywhere you get podcasts. Thank <laughs> you.